The statistics are grim. One in five working moms say they've been passed over for an important assignment or for a promotion because they have children. And women who take even one year off to have kids come back to earn 40% less than their peers. Working moms outpace, outperform, and outwork their peers. So why don't companies make an effort to support working moms? And how can working moms advocate for themselves in the workplace and in their careers? Frankly, we're tired of asking for a seat at the table. It's time to make our own table, and we're going to talk about how. I'm Zabine Mirza, and this is Moms at Work. Friends and fans, welcome to another episode of Moms at Work. I'm your host, Sabine Mirza, and of course, this is the official Jobs.Mom podcast. Today's episode is regarding an extremely important and personal topic, not only to me, but to women and mothers everywhere, not just in the U.S., but around the world. We're going to be talking about the state of the United States education system. We're going to talk about why in this pandemic, during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, why our economy and our societies were essentially brought to a standstill because schools were closed and women and parents had um, no place to keep their kids while they had to work. Um, And then, of course, on the flip side, we're going to talk about um, how Um, You know, we are not really giving our teachers the respect that they are due, um, the support that they are due, um, and everything that we can do for the future to make sure that we don't have this sort of crisis again. Um, And to talk about this most important topic, I have my ninth grade English teacher on with me today, Evelyn Sideri. Um, and and I, I did tell her before the show that it was causing me physical stress to call her by her first name because to me, you know, 20 something odd years later, she is still Mrs. Sideri. But she is um, not just an incredible human being, she is an incredible educator. She was um, so essential in shaping who I was as a child, as as a ninth grade student in high school. I had just lost my father um, the year before. And, um, you know, many of the life lessons that she taught, you know, either knowingly or or unintentionally or unknowingly, um, really stuck with me um, throughout my life. And and to this day, as I myself have three children, and um, really speaks to the value that educators have on the lives of children and, of course, fuels my rage around some of the topics we're going to talk about today. So without further ado, Evelyn Sideri here with me on Moms at Work. Evelyn, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. So exciting. (laughs) I'm so excited. And, you know, who would have thought, you know, all those years ago while I sat in your ninth grade English class reading Lord of the Flies, that decades on, you'd be uh, on my podcast. But if there was anyone to talk about this subject, I think it's you. Um, and um, why don't you first give everyone, Evelyn, a little bit of a background on your career and um, where you are today? Okay, no problem. Um, what's interesting to me is that I've been doing this for a while. Uh, I'm a 31-year veteran of the classroom. Um, I have a bachelor's from SUNY Stony Brook, a master's of arts in liberal studies, and a thank 
God, a master's of science in educational technologies. That's pretty recent. Um, taught at Westbury Middle School. I'm presently teaching at East Meadow High School. And, you know, th- there are these trite kind of teachers touch the future. And I'd love to tell you that it's nonsense, but it's not. You know, sitting at the hospital when you had baby number two and holding that baby in my arms, you know, it's it's like a time warp. Yeah. So when you take this job seriously, you know that that child's not just passing through your room for one year. Yeah. You know, it's a lifetime connection if you're doing it properly. Absolutely. And, you know, that we're going to talk about that. Teachers are more than just, you know, somebody that's grading your paper, somebody that's just babysitting your kids so you could go to work. And we're going to talk about that because I think we've seen a lot of controversy over the last year where parents are pushing teachers back to work and, and communities are fighting for schools to reopen and in unsafe conditions because, you know, the the privilege or the entitlement, you know, that that surrounds this idea that we pay our taxes and we pay these teachers salaries. And so they must babysit our kids while we're at work. And that that is absolutely criminal. Um, it's absolutely criminal. And, you know, why don't you share, Evelyn, a little bit about your experiences in the pandemic? Because you've had some very, very interesting um, experiences. I have to tell you, like I said, the degree in ed tech was an absolute blessing. And before we left, it was Thursday and Friday was teacher conferences. And I said, you know what, guys, let's just set up Google Meets and and let's just test it. So just in case. And one of the kids looked at me, says, ah, nah, let's use Zoom. I said, "Okay, let's try it. And that Friday before the world shut down, we all were in our little boxes and figured it out. And College Board gave an AP exam last year. And for me, I know that a year's worth of work goes into that one day of testing. So I was able to teach two to three days a week using Zoom and using Google and all different educational technologies that I taught, I would say, two to three times a week for an hour, hour and a half. And the kids were like, thank God we had somebody to talk to. It was nice to get out and see our classmates, even if we weren't getting out. And making the technology interactive was was great for them too. We could do Kahoot, which is kind of like a little game show. We could do Pear Deck. There are all different educational technologies that require that the kids interact and not just sit there and listen, which is just not pedagogically sound. So, you know, this was one of the things that was so striking to me when the world shut down and schools shut down. And this is not a commentary on teachers so much as a commentary on how behind the education system is. How come our education system, that is supposed to be the best in the world, that is supposed to be creating the leaders of tomorrow, that is supposed to be raising the future, struggled with basic technological infrastructure. They couldn't figure out a Google Meet or a Hangout or a Zoom. Why is there this gap where we're supposed to be leading the world and yet the resources aren't being diverted into teaching kids how to utilize cutting edge technology for the future? Where is that gap? So I didn't know we were gonna talk about the digital divide, but the digital divide is real. 
And yes, the kids, they know the technology. Some of them know the technology better than we teachers do. But I, I think that the whole breakdown is in training and that where is the money for the computers? And even if the kid has the Chromebook, which now we all have, you know, we, we didn't have to. We could be in the classroom. So we didn't need everyone to have a Chromebook. Well, now we do. And it, it was a scrambling. The other thing is teachers weren't ready. They weren't trained. I'm a technology person. I've always been a technology person. Even, you know, the old dog knows a few new tricks. But, you know, teaching teachers how to do this, they, they're, they're conversant. They know their subject matter. But all of this, how do I get on Zoom? How do I share my screen? How do I allow them to interact? How do, how do I help them? Well, now you have teachers who are having trouble teaching kids how to because they haven't been trained. And then, you know, the, the socioeconomic divide comes with, great, you have a Chromebook, but if you don't have Wi-Fi, Right. Or if you have multiple people living in a house and the Wi-Fi isn't strong enough. Um, I had a friend who was teaching in North Carolina, had to go sit in Taco Bell parking lot to teach because yeah. her Wi-Fi wasn't strong enough. Yeah. Yeah. So so it, it's, it's socioeconomic as most things are in education. Yeah. And, and we see it. And, you know. Uh, and, and we'll talk about it. Education is a human right. It shouldn't be socioeconomically based. Um, but I live now in a very affluent district um, where we have the resources, where kids in kindergarten are given devices, where teachers are highly trained. And we still struggled. We still struggled because, you know, priorities, priorities were different pre-pandemic. We never imagined a world um, where that necessity would arise to teach children digitally. Um, but that being said, my confusion was why even I can understand in elementary, middle, and high school to a level, but why even were institutions of higher education, why were they struggling when these kids are going into the workplace? For me, it was seamless. I'm on Zoom pre-pandemic every single day. I've done trainings and workshops. So for me, it was a given and a, I, something I took for granted. Um, so for me, I had to understand that this is not a normal for a lot of people. But I really struggled to understand and it became evident to me how antiquated some of our education um, system and, and thinking and process really is, especially as it pertains to preparing kids for the future. And Ms. Sideri, we talked about this in the classroom. I don't know if you remember this. I'm sure you do. You have, you know, the mind of a steel trap. But we talked about, you know, we talked about how come when kids leave the classroom, they know how to write an essay, but they don't know how to file their taxes. They don't know how to change a tire. They don't know how to budget. They don't know how to sit in an interview or give, you know, to communicate effectively uh, verbally. So life skills. So what are we actually preparing these kids for is my question. And what are your thoughts on the state of the U.S. education system as it pertains to that? It's so interesting because there are so many things flying through my mind as you speak. Both of my kids graduated from college in 2020. So they graduated-ish. Um, my son went on to the University of Chicago, where he's studying the digital humanities, which is a thing. Again, so there are majors out there that kids don't even know exist. But, you know, to do an analysis of Moby Dick using computers and, and data analysis, 
for me, that's even a what. Um, my daughter graduated from Ithaca College as a marketing and communications major. And for her, because she was selected as an outstanding multicultural student, she went to this wonderful conference and now she's working for an incredible marketing company for a pharmaceutical um, based business. But because she knows Canva and Ithaca was great about this, she knows Canva and she know she handed in something for a meeting and everybody's like, how did you do that? We have to address the needs of a changing world and we have to do it quick and we should have been doing it already. Um, for me, I teach AP language and composition. So when you teach a course in rhetoric, what are you doing having them do websites? Well, because rhetoric is as old as the Greeks, but it, we still use it. So at the end, the project is not go write me another essay. Watch a documentary. What is the filmmaker's argument? What are the means of argumentation that we've discussed to make that argument? Now, create tabs. Use Weebly. Lay out your website so it looks pretty, so that you have information, so that you can be understood. Because we aren't reading essays to see if someone can be understood. We're listening to podcasts. We are, you know, scrolling on our phones. We are looking at blogs. The world's changing. And are we asking kids to look at those changes and be critical thinkers in those changes? Yeah. And, you know, what we're talking about is, you know, like almost curricular shifts, right? And, and, and you're an educator and I'm a parent and it's clear to me and you're an educator and a parent so it's 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 funny because there is this feeling and i understand it as well that no matter what you do parents are going to be unhappy no matter what you do sure. but what we're talking about is curricular shifts there's even a more fundamental problem that beyond the content of the curriculum it's that schools and classrooms are being treated as daycares for their kids. And we saw this most prevalently um, during the pandemic, where teachers were being pushed, forced into in-person learning. We saw record high early retirements because of teachers not wanting to go back. Um, it's unfair. It's unjust, right? Um, especially considering the way we treat and pay and, and incentivize teachers in this country. So tell me a little bit about your experiences with that and you know your thoughts of how we can shift away from treating schools and teachers like daycares and babysitters. It's interesting because when you when you said that to me, I always think, oh well, we're treated like daycare. And I'm like, I'm high school. I don't really have that problem, but I do. Keep my kid busy so that they're not doing A, B, C, or X, Y, Z. And if I'm just there to keep them busy, then you should be paying me less. Yeah. That's not my job. My job is to give them skills. And the job of any teacher is, is to provide children with the skills they need to progress. And how do we do that? There, there's a myriad of ways of doing that. Did I want to go back to work? I'm going to tell you absolutely not. Did I go back and make it work? Sure. Because that's what teachers have been expected to do for centuries. 
Yeah. But there's this anti-intellectualism that surrounds teachers and it goes back to Ichabod Crane. Yep. You know, the, the dorky teacher. And, and I I just looked up the, the maxim, those who can't do teach. And I don't buy it because those who can teach. Yeah. It's, it, we're not babysitters. We're getting your kid ready. Yeah. And we have to have the right environment and the right support. So I think, uh, a major part of the problem is who are you recruiting and how are you getting them? And, you know, incentive isn't always about money. Incentive can also be about respect. And so much is lost when a teacher is not shown any respect. So as a parent, I very rarely called the school. I taught my kids from a young age, advocate for yourself, ask questions. And, and we're not babysitters. And if we were, we'd be paying differently. Everyone's seen, you know, the, the silly things on Facebook. You know, if I'm getting paid per head, yeah. oh my goodness. Yeah. And, you know, and then you start upping the stakes when you get to high school. How many of my kids scored five on the AP exam? How, how many, you know, percentage points was I above the, the, global, the global average? Or is that how we're doing this? No, I'm not a business person. I didn't choose to be a business person. But we, we have to look at our education system, not as children are a bunch of widgets and what can we make of them and how much can they make? It's, it's absurd. We have to move away from that industrial model. We have to move away from kids in straight rows and, and, and not being able to speak, just listen to me because I'm the expert and I have no opinion. Um, I teach a course, an AP course called AP Seminar where the kids come in and I teach them all the research skills. Like I taught you, I'm sure you remember your research binder. I, do. <laughs> I remember the PTSD from putting it together. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. There's that, but they get to select their own topics. They have to work in groups. They do, you know, they look at problems through social, economic, cultural lenses. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant when it's done the right way because now they have real life skills. How do I find the gap in research? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a debt of gratitude that we owe our teachers that we could never repay, not as parents, not as a society, not as a community. Um, And teachers, and you said it, you know, you go into education because it's a calling, not because you're going to become a billionaire, not because you're going to have some kind of amazing, you know, respect, because let's be real, the way we treat our teachers is abysmal in this country. There are teachers working three, four jobs to make ends meet. And you expect these teachers to feed your kids, to clothe your kids in a lot of these places, to teach them, to guide them, to mentor them, to protect them. And you won't give them uh, oftentimes the basic support and resources that they need. And, and we know how much teachers pay for things out of pocket. Um, and we know how much teachers put themselves on the line. And we've seen it um, in the pandemic more than ever, how teachers have gone above and beyond. And I utterly reject this, this maxim of those who can't teach those who teach, teach those who go on to do, right? 
they cannot do without those teachers. And so we need to erase this fiction, which it is, it was fiction, right? The headless horsemen, we're all about to become headless horsemen if we keep down this path because, you know, teachers are what are keeping, is are, are who are keeping the fabric of our community uh, together. Now, one of the, um, I'll never forget, one of the uh, assignments you had given us was to write a modest proposal. <laughs> remember the modest proposal? A little bit. So do you still give the modest proposal? Yes, I do. So why don't you tell everyone that's listening what the modest proposal is in case they're not familiar? Okay, well, it's Jonathan Swift. And a modest proposal was that Swift looked to solve the problems of, of starvation and poverty in the Irish and the, the poor landlording techniques of the British and said, okay, well, you know what? Let's, let's have a modest, and modest is in quotation marks, uh, proposal where just feed the children of the Irish to the British because they're consuming the parents anyway. And, you know, it's a lesson in diction. It's a lesson in satire. It's a lesson in irony. But what are, what are our societal problems? And sometimes when you ask a kid, they've got better answers than the adults do because they have a fresh view of it. Yeah. So I would ask the kids, what is a societal problem and what's a satirical way to solve it? So what would be, Ms. Sideri, your modest proposal for the American education system? <laughs> Burn it to the ground and let's start again. <laughs> yeah, it certainly feels that way some days, right? It's a, and, and of course, that's, that's absurd. You can't burn it to the ground. But we have to start with a fresh look, a fresh view. Society is different. The job market is different. College is different. And we've always known that, you know, higher education goes to the wealthy. Yeah. And, and how do we get around it? You know, I'm not wealthy. I'm a teacher. I make a nice salary. In New York, they pay teachers a living wage. So, you know, I, I can't mince words about that. But there is no way that my son, who went to Colby, undergraduate, would, be, would have been able to go without appropriate financial aid and uh, us, you know, watching what sports he played and how he did academically. And th there were a lot of things that had to happen. So how do we make higher education available to kids across the board? How do we avoid people buying their way into college? Because it happens. People just happen to get caught. And, you know, donating a building. Well, I'm not donating a building anytime soon. But Will built a reputation and now he's at UChicago. But this is, you know, a lot of garden tending on his father's part and on my part, you know, starting savings for them when they're in utero. We, we had the means to do that, but a lot of people don't. Yeah. I think what you're saying is also goes hand in hand when you're talking about, you know, this modest proposal. I just laughed because to look at things with fresh eyes means to me to remove the politics from education. It is one of the most politicized platforms. It shouldn't be a platform. It shouldn't be a political platform. Healthcare, science, right? Education. This is not politics, right? Um, and we talked about it a little bit when we were chatting before the, the show about, you know, the, the racial divide 
the socioeconomic divide. It's not just higher education. I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn. I was born and raised. I went to public school in Brooklyn. I went to high school in the suburbs when my family moved uh, to to the suburbs. But I saw the disparity with my own two eyes, right? In Brooklyn, in in the inner cities, in outside of New York, right? Um, kids, first graders, second graders, third graders, um, they don't have pencils, they don't have notebooks. I mean, one of the biggest um, fear factors in closing schools, even in New York, was that kids who only ate at school, how would they then get fed? This is a huge travesty. This is a travesty. And I think that's one of the beautiful things of our education systems because it's it's easy for us to, to rip it apart because there is almost everything wrong with it. But it has still been built to protect, harbor, give haven, and food to children who would otherwise not get it. But that divide does exist. So why don't why don't you share a little bit? And I know you 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 talk about this a lot, and it's something that's always at the forefront. Your thoughts on the racial divide, the economic divide, and what we can do to bridge that gap for these children. So for me, you know, I, I teach higher level classes, but you know, I've taught across the curriculum, I've taught across grade, I've taught across socioeconomic um, uh, hierarchies, but what is always the same is the human experience. And for me, uh, as a Hispanic woman, I let them know that this is who I am. I speak Spanish. I speak English. Um, but it's also about what we put in. What are we teaching? And and for me, like this year, especially with George Floyd and, and the awful things that are going on in our country, we have to provide representation. And we don't give representation for representation's sake. So I started with Tanahashi Coates's Between the World and Me. And they read Native Son. And we still do the crucible. And we look at Huck Finn from a contemporary perspective. And the most important part of it all is that we create experiences for kids with people who may not look like they do, who people who do look like they do. And we, um, on a whim... um, Mateo Ascanapur wrote Black Buck, and it's on the New York Times bestseller list. And it's about a young black man who is the, the valedictorian of his class at Bronx Science. And he chooses not to go the higher education route. So his introduction was amazing. And I just, I said, eh, I'm going to shoot him an email. He's a Bellport guy. He grew up on Long Island. I said, ah, you grew up in the next town over. I read your book. I love your introduction. I'd love to teach it in my course on rhetoric. And hey, you know, while I'm here, what would you think about zooming in with us? He said, yes. And I said, all right, guys, we've read it. We've analyzed it. Now you're going to formulate questions based on what you've read to this author. So here comes this man of color, and he's expecting, you know, this very nice, very cordial where are you from? What do you do? Kind of interview with 50 kids who were armed. I'm like, all right, so (laughs) lob in the first couple guys. So they lob in the first couple of questions like, where are you from? 
And it just got down to how does it feel being a man of color in the world of publishing? Is it difficult? Um, one of the quotes from the introduction was, you can change the hands of the clock, but you can't change time. And one of the kids is like, can you talk about a time where you wanted to change the hands of the clock, but you couldn't change time? And he, I, I watched his face as he looked out the window and looked back at the camera and he looked out the window and back at the camera. He's like, I have done 60 or 70 interviews, some of them with national news, and I have never been asked questions like this. And, and it was such a compliment to me for him to say, your environment that you must have created showed these critically thinking young people how to interact. So how do we look at people of color and, and people around us and think critically and respectfully and, and use civil discourse even when we don't agree? These are all skills that kind of what we were talking about before are the intangibles, that there, there's nowhere on my course guide that says, today we're going to talk about, it, it's, it's silly, but to me it just seems natural that we teach kids how to think critically. We teach them how to speak their mind and be respectful. And, and that's how we start to bridge those gaps. And what you mentioned about representation, there is this saying that I heard once and it really stuck with me. And to, a, to an extent, I, I will ascribe to it. And it says, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Right. And you, as a Hispanic woman teaching in the classroom, bring that diversity of perspective. And I'll tell you, I live in a predominantly white town, right? Mm -hmm. Overwhelmingly white. The overwhelming majority of teachers in my town are white. And um, there has been in recent years major discourse, especially in the last year, of how do we diversify our faculty? Uh, how do we diversify the staff so that kids can see something other than a white man or a white woman? Because they need to, because our bubble of whiteness is not representative of the world. Gen Z is poised to be the most diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural generation in history. Um, so we are actually failing our children if we don't diversify the environments that they're in. And I chair our town's uh, Council on Race and Equity. I co-chair it. And one of the things that we are constantly talking about is you can't, and, and you mentioned this, you can't just hire black people and say, I've diversified. You need to create an environment that allows black people to thrive, to teach those truths, to talk about the difficult, controversial topics without fear of litigation, without fear of job loss, without fear of any kind of penalty or being blacklisted or whatever. And I live in a very wealthy, affluent town. And so this is always at the, I don't even want to say on the back burner, on the fore, forefront of every educator's and every administrator's mind, we don't want to get sued. We need to take the politics out of educating our children and educate them the right things, the right topics, the right ways of thinking, critical thinking, allow them to talk about controversial things, because there's this 
mistaken idea, this misconception that, oh, if we don't talk about it in school, they're not going to learn about it. That's, they are, they know, they are going to learn about it. They, they know. And by not talking about it, you are creating a vacuum where they are going to start filling it with the wrong things. Why not allow for appropriate education um, and discourse? So I appreciate that so greatly as a mother of color. I have three brown boys that I always joke are cute now because they're small. And as they get older, they will be perceived as threats simply because of the color of their skin. Um, So the politics of education. Now, when we talk about the socioeconomic divide, Mr. Derry, I know you came armed with some statistics about the state of the world in the pandemic. And we talked about it a little bit before, record high early retirements, record high this, record low that. Why don't you share a little bit about what the state of the U.S. education system looked like last year? It was it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare because teachers couldn't get the kids to turn their cameras on. Kids didn't want to speak on the computer. Teachers were worried about being recorded and the litigiousness of our society. And and at the beginning of this year, I really kind of held my breath because the things that I hear my kids talking about, you know, John Proctor has an affair with a young girl. What, What are the, you know, social ramifications of that? You know, now mom and dad are listening or they might be. And that's, you know, that's really inhibiting. But, you know, I, I, I let it go. But how many teachers are not willing to let that go? Because they're afraid and rightfully so. Um, you know, if a teacher can't even get onto the Wi-Fi, how is a kid supposed to? And how can you keep a kid engaged? And how do you, a kid who's not engaged in the classroom is going to have another tab open and is going to be playing Minecraft or whatever they're doing and not listening to the teacher. And during the pandemic, there, the, the, second, the second school year round, um, I developed shingles. And I, I went into one of my classes where I have a co-teacher and I was listening to my co-teacher teach and I realized something really awful. I couldn't hear anything when the students were speaking. So when the other students are speaking, I can't hear them. So any kind of social or civil discourse that's happening, you can't hear. So you, you lose interest. It, it just, I think if the pandemic proved anything, it's that online teaching and online learning in and of itself, if we do that exclusively, is ineffective. Wow. There has to be a personal connection. Yeah. That's, that's the heart of education, period. There has to be a personal connection. Yeah. You know, I remember you coming in and, and dad had just passed. And, and your mom being in tears. And, and, you know, I could put my hands on her hand and tell her it was going to be okay. And I don't know if she ever told you that. And, and if that doesn't exist, then this is infinitely more difficult. Yeah. I, I remember you sitting there in class and we were doing To Kill a Mockingbird. And she's like, well, you know, Miss Sedari, you're like, we're brown. I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> she's like, and you were like, we're not black and we're not white. We're brown. I'm like, I'm getting fired. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But you know, it's the human connection. And I think that if we were working this way, how likely would you have been to share that 
Yeah. You know, from your home. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. And, and, you know, if, if everything could be taught on the internet or self-taught through textbooks, then we would never need teachers. We would never need classrooms. And we see, we have seen the proof of concept that that is simply not possible, right? A lot of the asynchronous learning was a huge struggle. It was horrible. It was horrible. And, you know, creating again, that safe environment for kids to come and talk about things that maybe their homes aren't equipped or open to talking about. It's so important. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying that I am white or I am black or I am brown or I am Asian. But saying that and having kids, other kids hear that, that is important. That is important. And you cannot do that outside of a teaching environment, outside of a classroom, whether it's even if it's online, because I know a lot of teachers that have done exceptional jobs with what they could have done uh, with what they had uh, over Zoom, right? Because that's the gift of a teacher. That's why teachers go to school to teach how to educate. It's, you know, your your master's degree in education is in small fraction, the content in large part, how to get that content across to your kids, right? And I think people don't understand that not everybody can teach. You could be the best in your field, but not everybody can actually impart knowledge to others in a way that is meaningful. Um, so, so the last thing that I want to talk about is, you know, we talk about the state of politics in education. And education is almost always on the chopping block when it comes to funding on a national level. So my question is two parts. Number one, why, right? Mm. Number two, where are the unions and what are they supposed to be doing? Um, and I guess to, to be, or the second part of my where are the unions question is, where are the lobbies and how can everyday people like me that have no link to education professionally, how can we advocate for teachers and better funding for education? Those are some really difficult questions. Because teachers like me with two master's degrees and 31 years of experience, we're very expensive. And the tenure system protects me and my salary that's higher than, you know, most of the other teachers in the district. But what does that salary provide? It provides, you know, AP Lang numbers that are well above what the global average is. So how do we, you know, the the advocate... The advocate will be, well, you know, get rid of the teachers who are at the top because you can get two for one. Anything that's two for one, you might not want. Yeah. Um, Your boards of education have to contain educators. When you have number crunchers exclusively on boards of education, that's what will happen. Well, that teacher can teach 35 kids in a class. Well, that teacher shouldn't be teaching 35 kids in a class. Do you need number crunchers to some extent? Sure. There has to be oversight. You know, we have to look at the issue in its entirety. Um, When you have the state, when you have the governor of New York looking, going, okay, well, there goes money for education. How many districts on Long Island will lose funding in a time when they need it most, when they had to buy computers and they put up plexiglass dividers and they, you want the kids in the classroom, that's going to cost money. 
and everything costs money and kids, kids and women tend to come last when there's money to be spent. Yeah. And we need, and, and I'm not saying dump money into the system, but dump money into the system wisely. Invest in, in teacher training. You want to go get a master's in ed tech? How about we pay for it? You want to get a master's in something else? Well, then that you're on your own. You know, incentivize teachers to be educated in fields that you know will advance the students and their knowledge. The, the, the unions are doing all they can. And I'm also the union rep for my building. And, and, you know, we look at a situation, you're going back to school and this is how you're doing it. And anything else will be considered a job action. Hands are tied. Back you go. And you wear your mask and you pray that you're not bringing anything home to your family. And, you know, well, you're an essential worker because we need you back in the classroom. But you're not an essential worker in Florida because you need a vaccine. New York was good that way. New York vaccinated us. I think we were second right after the doctors and the nurses. I was online. I took my shot. But, you know, a friend and a colleague in, in Florida got vaccinated last week. So how are you going to put her back in the classroom full time and not protect her? It, it, it makes teachers feel undervalued and, and unwilling to go to work. So th th there are a myriad of problems and, and it always comes down to the money and how it's spent and who decides how the money's being spent. So how do you get involved? You get involved because you're a parent and you attend board of education meetings. You run for the board of ed to help make those decisions. You vote for people who are education centered. That that in my mind, that's how that works. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's super super powerful and super important. And I think it goes back to, and we could talk about this forever. You know, again, I'm front and center to the politics of education in my own town, right? As a very affluent, wealthy town that where we pay a lot of taxes and everybody, you know, has a real strong sense of what should or should not be going on with their tax money, right? Um, but you're absolutely right. Education should be centered around the educating of the children, not around agendas, not around the politics, not around anything other than that. I think when we lose sight of that and we lose sight of the stewards of that education who are the teachers and this this two for one mentality is is awful right and we see the statistics all the time districts that invest in more experienced teachers or even that invest in training newer teachers better results better test scores better college admissions better everything across the board better general well-being um, of the students um, it starts with investing in the teachers that you're putting in the classroom. Um, now, the last thing before we be, before we wrap up here, I would ask you, you know, to share with all the women, the mothers that are listening to you, Miss Derry, what advice would you give them as a mother, as an educator, on how we push forward in? this world that we live in, in an education system that doesn't necessarily always um, do right by, by our kids, but how do we make the most of what we have going forward? 
it, it's such a difficult question. And I, I think the most important thing is as a, I'm a mom first. And what do we teach our children? How do we teach them about respecting elders? How do we teach them, you know, please, when you shake someone's hand, don't be a limp fish. You know, it, it sounds so silly. But when my son walks into a meeting, he knows how to shake someone's hand. And it all starts in the home. Love and kindness and disagreeing and how do we do that? And how do we teach our kids to behave when they go out into the wide world? And that you can't legislate. You can't legislate morality. But for me, the heart of it is in the home. And once you go from there, you know, then, then you hand your children over to me, the teacher, and I'm going to do the best I can to say, not every kid has to go to college. We need to look at vocational education. It, 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 and vocational education, Zabine, is very expensive, thirty to $40,000 per child per year. So, you know, districts will shy away because it's expensive. Um, there is, I, I believe that Dr. Hines is at Port Washington now. Uh, Michael Hines was the superintendent of Patchogue Medford Schools. And he and I sat down and had a, a really nice conversation. And he moved vocational programs back into the schools at Pat Med. So kids can learn how to fix a car. Kids can start to study medicine with like office rooms that are set up in the school. Bring it back home. Stop paying ridiculously high prices to give our kids vocational education, if that's what we have to suit the needs of the people we serve. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's so profound and it sounds so simple, right? Teach them the things that they're going to need to know. Don't teach them what they don't need, right? That's, that's all we're saying. Um, But of course we know the state of the world that we're in, it's always more complicated. So with that being said, Evelyn Sideri, Thank you so much for being here today. For those of you that were listening, Evelyn was my ninth grade English teacher who has held my children as I've birthed them, who has been with me um, throughout every stage of my life and is here with us on Moms at Work. Evelyn, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And for those of you that want to follow along uh, uh, with Evelyn, um, you can listen to Evelyn's podcast as well as follow her on social media. I will share Evelyn's uh, handles in the episode description. And Evelyn will also share resources like the stats that she had, and you can follow those along um, in the episode description as well. Um, In sum, from today, if I leave you with anything, it's to love your teachers, respect your teachers, take care of your kids. It all starts at home. And remember, teachers are not babysitters. Until next time, I'm Zabine Mirza, and this is Moms at Work. Follow us on social media. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out more episodes at jobs.mom slash moms at work.